you didn't notice a theme in our music for today, it was a lot about us being sinners and a lot about us needing saving. And uh, if you didn't notice it as well, we just acted together in a moment of church gathering to confess our sins in a broad way and to confess our need for Jesus. And as we're working through some ideas about how we should be praying together as a church during the month of January, this today, our topic today, lands on confession. And so it lines right up with how we've been singing and how our hearts have been connecting to the gospel already. So if you would turn in your Bibles and join me in Psalm 32, in Psalm 32. It is a psalm that was written by David. It's a psalm that was written probably a little bit later than Psalm 51. It seems that he's had a little more time to think about what he did when he sinned against God and when he sinned against Bathsheba, when he sinned against her husband and had him murdered so that he could have her as his wife to cover up his transgressions. And if you remember back in Psalm 51, he makes a statement, I think in verse 4, where he says, against you, you only have I sinned, talking to God. And we know he sinned against the whole nation of Israel by bringing down his sins upon the nation as their leader. We know he sinned against Bathsheba's husband. We know that he sinned against her. We know he sinned against the Lord too. But why would he make this statement that against you, God, against you alone have I sinned? And I think this psalm, Psalm 32, helps to clear that up for us a little bit. And to give you a little bit of a spoiler, I think it's important for us to understand that our sins, no matter who we sin against, where we need to confess to them and ask for forgiveness as well, but they pale in comparison in their value in that way against one another when compared to our sins, every one of them, no matter who it's been against, our sinfulness against a holy, righteous God who loves us so much that he would give us his only son. And today we're going to learn what it means to be confessional and why it's so important for us to be confessional to our God as we seek him, to be with him in his presence, and to speak to him. I want you to look with me in Psalm chapter, or Psalm 32. I'm going to read all 11 verses, then I'll pray for us one more time before we endeavor to unpack it. Let the words of the Lord wash over us this morning and see if the Lord pricks your heart and identifies anything that you might need to confess to him as we read. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Notice right there, I'll pause for a moment. That word selah, we're not exactly sure what the real definition of that word is in the Hebrew. But it seems to be inserted into the Psalms at places where you should probably stop and ponder and let it sink deeply in your heart. So let me read verse 4 again. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is God speaking now to David. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let us pray together. Father, we need you. Father, we need you now, like every moment of every day since the first day we met you and even before we knew that we needed you. Lord, help us this morning. Would you work in our hearts? Would you illumine our understanding so that we might hear your word, read your word, to feast on your word, and that you would change us, Lord, is our prayer. Make us more into the image of Christ that you created us to be in. And help us, Father, as you reveal sin in our lives, that we'd be sensitive to your Holy Spirit is our plea to you now, and that you would lead us to be bold in confessing our sins to you and one another. And that, Lord, through that, we would find forgiveness because of the sacrifice of your son Jesus on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Go back and look at verses 1 and 2. We're just going to unpack it. We're just going to walk through it today. We're going to take time to unpack the pieces as we go. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Don't jump over the immediate first words in any passage of Scripture. Often they are extremely important. Today we see a word that should remind us of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he begins in what we know as Matthew chapter 5, when he gives a long uh, litany of blessed are those. And that word blessed there means much like what it does here. Too many folks have tried to simplify it to just mean happy, like happy are those. But in our language, that does not translate well for the meaning of the word in the Hebrew or the Greek. In fact, the word blessed uh, should be more seen as the idea of being the most fulfilled and the most joyful life is the declaration here that we see from the psalmist covering the people who would live out this life. The most fulfilled, the most joyful life will be yours. That's the idea. You'll be blessed in that way. So if you say, God, bless this person, you're saying, give them the most joy-filled and fulfilled life they could possibly have. And I want you to understand that this psalmist leads us right into how you find that. 
Here's what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Let me say it like this. And I'm completely stealing these words from someone else. They just lined up so well I couldn't make them better. So another commentator said it better than I could. And this is what he said. The most fulfilled life belongs to those who have been deeply forgiven. That's the theme of the entire psalm. Way to hear it again. If you want to listen, if you want to have the most fulfilled life you could have, it's not going to come in your job, in your career, even in your family, even in your marriage. Those things will bring you great joy. But if you want the most fulfilled life, the most blessed life that you could possibly have, it's not going to come through reading some other preacher's book about how you can find success if you just pray and ask for God to give you lots of money or whatever you have the desires of your heart to be, unless those desires are for more of God himself. And so here is this fulfilled life. The most fulfilled life belongs to those who have been deeply, hear that word, deeply forgiven. I don't know about you, but I often find that I am not very broken over my own sin. And sometimes I can find myself so broken over a sin I've already asked for forgiveness from that I seem to not believe the good news that's been preached to me in the gospel of Jesus. I'm telling you here today, the most fulfilled life belongs to those who have been deeply forgiven. So what does that mean? Don't check out on me. I think if you're thinking to yourself, this isn't it for me. I've already been forgiven for all the big stuff. I don't have a lot of stuff today to deal with in this way. Let's let everybody else enjoy this. You're going to miss a huge blessing from the Lord in the fact that you're not recognizing how much more deeply we need to be forgiven. Let's break down these words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He counts no iniquity. And whose spirit there is no deceit. That word forgiven, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That word forgiven means the, the weight of your sin has been lifted off of you. Have you ever done something and felt like you could not escape the burden of that thing? No matter how much good you do, no matter how many times you go and ask forgiveness from that person, the weight of it, the severity is so drastic that you cannot walk away from it, and you feel it, and the enemy reminds you of it, and you feel like you can't get out from under it, ever? Today I'm telling you that the Word of God tells us, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's lifted off of you. John Bunyan spoke about it well. The burden of our sin that weights us down. And the more we recognize it's there, the more heavy it is to us. And I'm here today to tell you that in the good gospel, good news of Jesus, you can find forgiveness where God lifts that burden off of you in a way that you may never have felt before. And that if you go to him, seeking him out for forgiveness, to confess your sin to him, and we'll talk about what that means to confess a little bit later on in the depths of that. If you go to him and do that, you can find that weight lifted from you. And then he talks about it being covered. Blessed is the man, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's a weird word, isn't it? Whose sin is covered. We don't like to think about that in the way that the scriptures are talking about. We, we think of covered usually in covering our sin as in hiding our sin. You know? Like when I used to cover myself up to make sure the boogeyman wouldn't get me after I jumped in the bed from afar, right? 
We cover up our sin. We hide our sins from one another. And we do a great job of it. In fact, I find it very easy as I read the Bible, like the New Testament especially, and reading the Gospels, I find it really easy to listen to how Jesus kind of takes the Pharisees to task for their thinking they're so much better than others that I forget to recognize that if I'm close to anyone in there, I'm not close to Matthew the tax collector these days. I'm not more like uh, uh, any of the guys that were far off. I'm a lot like the Pharisees. I'm a lot like the ones who cover our sins up. But what he says here, blessed is the man against whom the transgression has been forgiven, whose sin is covered. It, it harks back to the idea in the Old Testament, and you often may have wondered, why do they have to sacrifice animals, and why did the guy have to clean himself up and go into the Holy of Holies once a year and have to throw some blood on a seat in this Holy of Holies where God supposedly resided, right? Why does, why does man have to do that? Well, it's because our sin separates us from relationship with God. And the only way to overcome that is for our sin to be wiped away through the spilling of blood. That only blood being let out can be what brings forgiveness. The Old Testament is clear on that. And so when that priest would go into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, on that Ark, the top of the Ark, was the seat of the Holy of Holies. And that is where he would go in and he would sprinkle blood to cover the sins of the people so that that would be removed out of the way between their relationship with God. And so here he says, Blessed is the one who's been forgiven of their transgressions. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And then he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You ever had somebody that you've hurt counted against you? All the time, probably. And a lot of times it's fair, right? It's what should happen. It's just when they count it against you. But I'm here to tell you today that if you find yourself in Christ, if you have given yourself to the Lord as he has given Jesus for you, then your sin has been forgiven, your transgression has been covered, and it is not counted against you. Blessed is that one whose sin is not counted against them, and in whom there is no deceit. Let's... Take that big statement again. The most fulfilled life belongs to those who have been deeply forgiven. Who have been deeply forgiven. Look at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Here's your hermeneutics lesson for today. In other words, here's your lesson for how to read the Bible and understand it, okay? So verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 tells you what's happening, and verse 4 tells you the reason for why that's happening or how that's happening. And you know it because the word starting verse 4 is the word for, F-O-R in English, or because, all right? That's the, that's the grounding statement that's about to come for why the thing before is true. Look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, in other words, when I did not confess my sins, my bones wasted away. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You know what groaning sounds like, right? It doesn't usually come when you're relaxed and having a good time. Through my groaning. You ever been in a place where you're hurting so bad that you're groaning and you feel like your bones are wasting away? This is what's going on here. And he says, for, here's why, day and night, 
Your hand, talking to God, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Listen, brothers and sisters, there is great danger, that word's on purpose, there's great danger in withholding our confession of sin. There's great danger in that. God's hand of conviction will weigh heavy upon you in both body and soul. Even now, in these days, if you have sin that you are not confessing to Him. And it may feel like you're wasting away from the inside out. His hand of conviction will weigh heavy. You know why? Because He loves you too much to let you live in that sin without consequence. He wants you to turn to Him in relationship. He's not being mean. He's being loving when you feel the weight of that conviction. I wonder if it's what's going on in 1 Corinthians. Remember the church gone wild? Corinthians, those guys. Remember where he has to tell them, like, you're taking the Lord's Supper in vain. You're doing it all wrong. Let me show you how it should be done. And he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11. We read from that almost every time that we do communion together at the end of each month. Here's what he says, 27 through 32. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, they're not confessing their sin. They're not even looking to the fact that they're sinning. He's talking to the church now. He's talking to those who are supposed to be saved people, and they're not doing that. And look what he says, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Go back to verse 3. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Do you believe that God loves you enough to send Jesus? Do you? Do you believe he loves you enough to send his one and only son who's worth more than all of creation to die for you on the cross? Yes? Then you must also believe that he loves you so much that if you're walking in sin that's unconfessed, putting in danger what you say is your confession of Jesus that maybe you're not really who you think you are. If he loves you enough to send his one and only son, he must also love you enough to do whatever it takes to lead you to repentance. He loves you that much. And you may think, I don't understand. Why, why would he let this happen to me? I don't know. Maybe you have unconfessed sin, or maybe it's like Job where you don't. But the Lord is using something in your life to make you more into the image of Christ. And for some of us, that might be that we need to confess and repent of sin that is Rebellion against God in our hearts, even for those who say we love Him. Maybe some of us are under that weight of sin right now. Maybe our pride bears that burden and weight of our sin when we could be free of it by confessing it. Maybe you're thinking like, no, he's not talking about me. I don't have anything that big. Let, let, me, let me tell you, this is the weirdest thing about Christianity. I say it often. Um, I say it to myself as much as I say it to anybody else. The weirdest thing about being a Christian, I think, to outsiders is the fact that those who truly are believers in Jesus love it when they find more sin in their lives because when they confess it and they see how much of a sinner they are, they see how much more glorious Jesus actually is. You don't really understand how glorious Jesus is if you don't understand how much of a sinner you really are. That's why Jesus says to Simon in, I think it's Luke chapter 7, when Simon is, 
uh, having him in his home, and this woman comes in, and she is broken over her sin, and she begins to cry at the feet of Jesus, and she wipes his feet, cleans his feet with her hair and tears, and takes wonderfully expensive ointment and showers his feet with it. And Simon looks, and they're all thinking in the room, how would he ever let this woman do this if he knew how much of a sinner she was? And he tells a story, and at the end of the story, he says, Simon, do you get it? Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who truly understand the mercy of God are the ones who actually love him in that way. I like to think that I would be like her if I had hair not falling out but growing out. I like to think that I would be like her, but most likely I would be like others in the room who were too embarrassed to go and shower his feet with my tears and wipe them with my hair. My pride is great. I wish that I was that broken over my sin. Oftentimes the Lord does bring light like that into my life. Does he do it in yours? Do we respond in a way that shows our joy in him? Because when you see that sin, it should lead you to despair. But we don't live in despair as Christians. We live in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. And that is glorious for us. Lord, thank you for revealing my sin. Show me how to walk the way out. And he will speak more into that. God is speaking to us in this word right now. Listen to how Jesus even calls to us in the same way in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest right? Come to me. This is the place that we find it. So don't keep silent, but confess your sin today. And every time that it becomes revealed to you, confess it. And if you think you have none, go sit before the feet of Jesus and ask him to reveal it. Beg him to show you more because we know it is unending in our sinful selves. Even though we're declared saints, we are still not righteous in ourselves. We are sinners. How long might you have carried the dreaded sin that you carry even today? Or it's shame and self-loathing. Carry it no longer, brothers and sisters. Go to the one who will give you the fullness of life you'll find when you realize you've been deeply, deeply forgiven. Look how quickly and completely next the great and overwhelming flood of God's all-encompassing forgiveness can sweep over your soul here. Look at verse 5 with me and see how you only have to confess your sins to the Lord and you will instantaneously be forgiven in full. Look at it, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Notice The pause is not in the middle of that verse. It's after the fact. Notice that David doesn't even say, I have confessed my sin in the last part of it. He says it more, I'm going to that. I'm saying to you, I said to you, I'm going to confess it and immediately forgiven. Immediately. As soon as it begins to come out, it should remind us of the prodigal son who is thinking to himself, I'm going to go home, I'm going to tell my dad I'm sorry, I did wrong, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, and he goes running home, and his dad, who's looking for him to come back, right, just like the father sees us, is waiting for us to turn to him, except we don't have to travel miles to get to him, he's right there. 
And the father's looking, and when he sees his son, his son comes up, and he starts to say, Father, I have done... And as soon as he does, he hugs him, and he kisses him, and he calls the servants to come and put his ring on him, and his robe on him, and clothe him in his righteousness, just like us, that he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ as soon as we turn back to him. We don't have to wait to be forgiven. As soon as we truly confess, we find forgiveness in Jesus. As soon as we truly go to the Lord and uncover our sin before him and ask forgiveness, it says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Rest in that truth. We aren't going to find rest in the world around us. It feels like it's just speeding up and speeding up and speeding up. Maybe that's just age. I don't know which it is. But you will not find rest in the world around us. You won't find rest in the comfort of your relationships on this earth. You will find rest in the forgiveness of the Lord. It is the only place. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. But what all is entailed in confession? It's a good question. I've read a lot on it over the years. I love reading the Puritans on it. Uh, Tim Keller has a lot of good things to break it down. I, I really enjoy understanding more about what confession means because I really honestly believe that if we want to become the church we're supposed to be, it doesn't stop with the individual confession to the Lord. We also need to confess in the presence of others. In fact, we see that like at the end of verse 7 where he says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. He's talking about the other people that are around him. God's giving those people to him. So we know it's not just for ourselves alone, but what is this idea of confession? Because it's easy to say, well, I told God I was sorry, or I told that person I was sorry, and it doesn't fix everything. So what is entailed in this idea of confession? Let me say a couple of things. One, you cannot simply be sorry for the consequences of your sin. You know what I'm saying? You can't just be sorry that I hurt you. I mean, there are times when somebody says you did something wrong, and if you really search your heart, you really pray, and you ask the Lord, you can say, I don't believe I did anything wrong, but I would never want to hurt you. Please help me understand. You can say that, but that's not confession, okay? That's, that's, that's a difference between two people about whether they've sinned or not. So when you talk about confession itself, what we're talking about is not just simply being sorry for the consequences of your sin. And you can't just see the danger of your sin or the inconvenience of your sin. There's a great illustration right here about that. Look, look down in verse, uh, verse 9. This is an example of seeing the danger of your sin or the inconvenience of your sin and then turning from it for that reason. Look, look at verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. I've not ridden a lot of horses in my life. I definitely haven't ridden a mule, but I have been around some horses that act like mules, and I have been around myself when I act like a mule, and I have seen when animals don't want to do what you want them to do, you know? And so the idea here, and one of, actually several people talked about it in their commentaries, and some preachers I read their sermons, they talked about it as well, and it's this, this idea here really is clear when you think about it like this. You can't deal with your sin in a way of it just being inconvenient or dangerous for you so you don't do that sin for a season because it's like being a mule. God gives us a great illustration. It's like having a, a, a bridle in your mouth, okay, a bit, and it's like when you want to go forward and a mule wants to go forward and then they want to turn left all of a sudden, but then the master gives them a little kick to the rear end, you know, 
or the sides. And they're like, oh, oh, oh I'm going to go forward. Yep, you're right. But I, I kind of want to go left right here. And then they kick a little harder. And then that mule goes a little further and keeps trying to go left. And it kicks a little harder. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, that's too much. It's not worth it. I'm going to go forward, right? That's not the same thing as confession and repentance. So don't just think that because God has brought some calamity down upon you or because God's allowed something to happen in your life or because somebody got mad enough at you or because your spouse finally said, I'm done, I'm not going to deal with it anymore, and you go to counseling, that that's going to be enough and that's a good reason to do it. Because you know what's going to happen? If it's not true confession and repentance, you're going to be right back there one day. You're going to be right back in the place where you were because you're not really repenting. You're turning away from the inconvenience. You're turning away from the danger. You're not really changing. That's another one. You also have to, confession, listen, you also have to see the depth of your rebellion against the holy and righteous almighty God of the universe. Uh, I get to be a part of a great Bible study with some men uh, in the morning on Wednesday, and in that time together, we just are doing a study on the gospel, and one of the things we just talked about this week was about the fact that the scriptures refer to us as enemies of God. Most of us don't want to think of ourselves as enemies of God. Apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. The Bible talks about it all over the place. In fact, it says crazy stuff like Psalm 5 that, where God says, I hate the workers of iniquity. And if you think about it, you're like, wait a minute, that's me. We are enemies of God. You know why? Because our sin is that great. If we lessen our sin in some way to think that we're not that bad, what we're doing is saying that we may not really have needed Jesus. Our sin is so great that it caused such a great chasm between us and God that he had to send Jesus. He had to send the perfect, righteous, holy Son of God who's worth more than all of creation combined. He had to send him to become one of us to live the perfect life that we cannot live so that he could overcome our sin for us by drinking it all down on the cross until it was finished. So that he could bring us into his family. It's so great that he had to send him. And Jesus had to die for us on the cross. We are in rebellion. Another guy named Alexander McLaren says it like this. You do not understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature. Or against the law written on your heart. Or as the breach of the constitution of your own nature. Or as a crime against your fellows. You have not got to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. Every little sin. And you also have to do the emotional hard work of confession by putting yourself in the shoes of the one offended. Only then do we really begin to truly feel a deep desire for repentance. So I had trouble doing that. I have trouble putting myself in the shoes of God. Another preacher, Tim Keller, I mentioned him earlier, he did a great job with it. He says it like this. He kind of says, this is how it should be for us when we do this. He says, oh, Lord, I can hardly imagine what it's like to create somebody and then sustain them every minute of their lives, keeping their heart pumping, keeping their lungs breathing. I can hardly imagine what it's like to give everything to somebody and be ignored day in and day out and to have promises broken over and over and over and over and over again. I can hardly imagine, but I'm trying. I'm truly sorry. 
every one of us needs to understand the depth of our sinfulness in order to understand how deeply forgiven we really are. And in that, we see how beautiful and glorious and magnanimous Jesus is and how worthy of praise, all praise, and how worthy of our rejoicing that he is. Only then do we really see those things. We have to take full responsibility for our sinfulness. Because when we diminish, when we diminish and devalue the greatness of our sin, we not only cheat ourselves from living the most blessed and fullest life that God desires for us, but we also rob God of the glory that He deserves in sending us Jesus. Because we lessen how great that was and how huge that was and how overwhelming that is and how crazy it is to think that he would do that for us. But because of his great love, amen, because of his great love for us, we can now love him back because of Jesus. So don't tarry. (laughs) Don't wait. We don't have tomorrow for sure. We don't know when he's going to come and bring the day of judgment like a thief in the night. We don't know what that's going to be. In fact, in verse 6, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Implication is there's going to come a time where you can't be found for this. In fact, he says right after that, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Speaking, I'm sure of the day of judgment coming upon us. Listen, Isaiah 55 says it, if that wasn't clear enough. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. When we withhold our confession of sin, we are trying to hide from God, and this is the insanity of sin. You know you can't hide from him, right? We think we can. It's like Adam and Eve. We think, how silly were they to go hide in the garden and put some leaves over themselves, right? Covering up their nakedness and their shame. God can see right through all that stuff. He knows where they are. He knows what they've done. And same with us. And we still try to cover our nakedness and our shame and our sin. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, don't run and hide under excuses or under pride or under somebody else did it or, yeah, 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 I did this wrong thing, but you did this. Don't go run and hide under those things. Run and hide in the one who loves you so much he provided the covering for your sin, who is Jesus, when he sent him to the cross for us. In fact, it's exactly what it says. Look in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Man, when we turn to God and we hide in God, we become completely free from the chains of sin that lock us down into our cruel self-loathing, into our unforgiveness of others, into our bad attitudes, into our, you name it, whatever it is, it's not going right. But in him, when we hide in him, we can find him. The enemy tells us, the enemy, he tells us, he whispers in your ears. Sometimes you hear it more than others. Listen, he whispers in our ears that God won't really forgive you, that what you've done is too great. Where if your family really knew what kind of person you were, they would never love you like you think they love you now. He whispers those things, but beloved, do not believe the lies. 
They are lies. He is the great accuser. and He's the great deceiver. And he is not your father if you have become in Christ, if you've given yourself over to Jesus. Your father is the Lord God Almighty who made you and who sustained you and who has sent Jesus to save you and he's redeemed you and he sent the Spirit of God to live in you in order to sanctify you and to bring you home one day when the time is right. Put your hope in him. And he, the enemy, wants to destroy you. But God loves you so much that he gave up his one and only son that you will never face destruction. He faced it for you. He chased after us headlong and ran headlong into death and hell in our place. So let us not hide from him, but let us run to him today. Let's run to the Lord. Let's see what all he's done for us in our confessing and in his forgiving. Look at verses 7 and 8. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. Look, he surrounds us with other people who shout for our deliverance. You need other people in your life who love Jesus that know you well enough to know when you're struggling so that you can be honest with them and talk about your struggles so that when you do, they can shout for you to run back to the Lord. They can shout for your deliverance to run and hide in him and not hide in your nakedness and shame. Instead, run to the Lord. Look what it says in verse 8. I will instruct you, God says, and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule. But he said, I will counsel you. I will teach you. He will instruct us by his word. And look at that, those words right there at the end of verse 8. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That means face to face with you. In your presence. With you. That's the whole purpose of all things. Every, the whole reason he's done, everything he's done is for his glory and so you could be with him forever. I will be your God, you'll be my people, and I will walk among you. And in the end, he says the same thing. The Lord himself is with them and they are his people and he is their God to be with them. This is what he wants and this is how it works. And when we realize the fullness of our depravity and sin, we can finally begin to be blessed. Finally. Enjoying the fullest life of joy in him that always leads us to revel in, that means celebrate, to revel in or celebrate the love of God, which also leads us to worship. I'm going to get real with you for a minute. Are you ready? This is where the Lord has been stepping on my toes. So don't blame me if you get a little bit of that this morning. I'm just sharing with you how he's convicted my heart in this area alone. Look at verse 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Listen to that. He's calling them righteous. God's calling us righteous because we confessed our sin and it's covered. It's been forgiven. We're not righteous in ourselves. He declares us righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. Be Glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. See, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, confessing your sins, finding forgiveness in an instant, you will continually find yourself surrounded and enveloped in the steadfast love of the Lord. That's that word we talked about a lot lately, chesed in the Hebrew, which means his faithful, always there, merciful love to you that does not change, his covenant, his promising love to you. And it will lead you to be glad in the Lord, to shout and rejoice for joy. Did you, did you, I think we miss those parts as Baptists. Hey, all people that grew up in Baptist world, look at those words again in verse 11. Just hang on. Before you do, unbuckle your seatbelt a little bit. Pull it over. Get a little loose. Shake it out. 
be glad in the Lord. You may not know what that word means. Let him clarify some more. And rejoice. Okay, rejoicing is not like, yeah, amen. That's not rejoicing. You can be glad and do that, but that's not rejoicing. I'm just saying, the biblical definition, if you want me to get in the Hebrew, rejoicing is not just like, yeah, that's a good word right there. Okay, that's not how it works. That's not rejoicing. He says, shout for joy. <laughs> Whoa, watch out. When's the last time you shouted for joy about anything in your life? When's the last time you were walking through the aisles of Walmart and the price dropped on the thing you wanted to buy and you're like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Amen. More seriously, when's the last time God revealed your sin and then he revealed his forgiveness and his grace in Jesus and you shouted, praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. When's the last time that happened? In your hearts, out loud. This is not an internal thing. Shout for joy, are you upright in heart? Do you ever wonder why we sometimes worry about embarrassing ourselves amidst our brothers and sisters when we're excited about what the Lord has done for us? It's because our pride is strong and it's deep. But we will find the fullest life we could possibly have when we recognize that in Christ we are deeply forgiven. And we will shout and rejoice in the Lord. I'm not trying to get you here to turn into a different denomination, okay? I'm just trying to get you to enjoy your salvation. I'm trying to get you to revel in Jesus. I'm trying to get you to make much of the one who made so much of us that he sent his son to die for us on the cross. And it's okay to be overwhelmed and to weep. And it's okay for those tears to turn to tears of joy. And it's good to make much of him. It is good to rejoice. It is good to be loud for the sake of the Lord and to sing out your praises and to say amen and hallelujah to him and say thank you, Jesus. It is good to be those ways. Let your children see that in you and see how it changes their lives. Let your friends see how you rejoice and become a fool in their presence for the sake of their salvation or for the sake of their edification and see how it changes the world around us. We want to be a church that does something greater than just come and gather. Then let us worship the Lord with everything that is within us because of what he's done for us in Jesus. And let us make much of him, whether it be singing, whether it be speaking greatly of him, shouting, or even in the quiet moment of heartache, whispering the grace and mercy of the Lord into our own ears or the ears of those who are hurting. But let us make much of the Lord. Listen, when we biblically confess our sins to the Lord, it leads us to rejoice. Listen, let me give you a few as we end. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Praise the Lord. Amen? Praise the Lord. Listen to this one. I, he says, God, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Amen. Praise the Lord. This is good news. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? Good news. Praise the Lord. And this one we end on, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, for us, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For in him, we are now made the righteousness of God. Undeserving never able to accomplish anything to get there. He loved us that much. Thank you, Lord, 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So let us shout for joy, brothers. Let us sing praises after we confess our sins and find that forgiveness comes and our life will become its fullest we've ever known. The more we recognize we've been deeply, deeply forgiven. Father, we need your grace even now in this endeavor. I pray that you would work in us to change us and to shape us, to give us clarity on areas where we didn't even know that we needed to repent, that you would lead us by your Spirit, that you whisper in our ears, and Lord, if necessary, you would shout and shake us to the point where we finally repent of sin and confess it to you, not for our salvation if we're already in you, but for your glory and for our joy. Please, Lord, do it today. And I beg you, Father, if there's someone in this place that is watching us even now online, I, I, I ask you, Lord, would you please, please break their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh this morning. For in our sin, we cannot, but God, you, in your grace and mercy, can give us faith and woo us to yourselves. I pray, Lord, you would save anyone today through this good news of Jesus, that they would turn from their sin and repent and believe in Jesus for the first time. And that the rest of us, again, for the millionth time, we believe more on Christ. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And show us our sin that we might revel in your grace and mercy in Jesus. And we ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen.